0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 8, as we continue in our reading of the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, the Beatitudes this morning. And so hear now the word of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning two great promises are held out to us, to be pure in heart and to see God. May we this morning be captivated by the call of Jesus. Would you use your word to equip us to know what it is to be pure in heart and to walk as you would have us to live. In Jesus' name we ask the help of your spirit today. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's hard to make a statement like the greatest thing about Jesus' is preaching. So I'm just going to throw a little qualifier at the beginning. One of the greatest things about Jesus' is preaching is that he was very skilled at preaching in such a way that he located the source of trouble in the lives of his listeners. So, so what he didn't do was just deal with bad behavior. Um, it feels like I do that as a parent, right? I don't deal with the heart situation. Instead, I just say, stop doing X. Stop yelling at your sibling. Stop whatever. Um, And it would be very easy as I think you could imagine Jesus coming into the world seeing a very messed up people and going, stop doing that. Sort of like that Bob Newhart skit, if you remember. Stop it. Just stop. Just stop. Um, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus comes into this world and he drives his listeners to identify the place where the problems of their life really trace to. And he doesn't just leave them to do it on their own, but he guides them to it to see where the source of the problems are, right? He doesn't just look at the crowd and say, you know what your problem is? You keep being bad. <laughs> He's the easiest sermon in the world. You keep being bad. Um, you keep doing bad things, right? Je- Jesus doesn't have an obsession with the symptoms, Jesus is is like a skilled physician, a skilled physician. What does a skilled physician do? They want to get to the heart of the problem. They want to figure out exactly what it is that's causing these problems. And so any physician is going to tell you, if you have somebody who's suffering, do what you can to deal with the symptoms, but don't kid yourself that by dealing with the symptoms, you've dealt with the underlying problem. Because if you do that, you will not experience true healing. And Jesus is this skilled physician, right? And so because of this, Jesus is less concerned with the symptoms than he is with the sickness. So what does he say? He says, he says let's get to the heart. To be a Christian is to be someone who yearns to be pure, yearns to be someone who's devoted to God, who's separated from his sin in his desires, in her desires, in her life, preferably forever. That's what a Christian wants. And so remember also that today's passage builds upon all that came before. You heard this in in Micah's prayer as he was leading us in the the, the prayer before, uh, he was sort of leading us through and reminding us of the different things Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, that when we mourn for the state of our own souls, when we come to the Lord in humility, because we hunger for righteousness that we don't have, what do we do? We lean upon the righteousness of Christ. And that's what Jesus has been laying down and building for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so because of that, what happens? He continues on, he says, we see fruit in our lives as we become people who love righteousness and who show the same mercy to others. And then we come to our passage today and we see that a Christian is someone who lives with a promise of seeing the, the God he is devoted to. And so all of these things build upon one another. Remember, this is a cumulative argument Jesus is making. He's not giving us one-bit truisms that we take for a moment, then we move on to the next one, and they're not connected with each other. No, this is a sermon. This is not just a series of proverbs that Jesus is listing for us. And so the Christian, you might say, has these twin ambitions that the, that the Christian lives with, right? To be pure in heart. And to see God. And both of these things are things that Christians yearn for. So let's, let's jump right in. Let's look at the two things that the Christian yearns for. The, the first ambition of the Christian that Jesus mentions is the ambition to be pure in heart. Uh, I mean, you see the words. They're very simple. Blessed are the pure in heart. I want you to notice first that he talks about the heart here. Uh, You know, the heart is the way that Jesus speaks about who we really are. Uh, The heart is spoken of in ancient writers as the center of our life. It's the center of our motivation. It is the thing that defines who we are. It is our thoughts. It is our beliefs about ourselves, about our our God, about, about the world. And you take all of these things that we believe about ourselves and that we believe about the world, and they make us who we are, which is another way of speaking about our heart. And of course, our our heart can be pure, but it can be impure. That's one of the implications of what Jesus says here. The fact that he says, blessed are the pure in heart, implies that there is a such thing as being impure in heart. So there's, there's embedded here this reminder that the heart is not just the center of our virtue. It is also the center of our sin. It is the center of our problems. Now, I do fear that for, for many Christians, we have just sort of lost track of the problem of sin. We've lost track of the fact that the problem of sin begins in the, in the heart. So what do we do? We tend to pass blame. We tend to find someone in our world who is making things terrible for us. We are looking for a bad guy and curiously missing from the suspect list is us. So we're looking, well, I've looked through everybody, and I can't find the, the main villain of my life, and uh, we don't look in the mirror. So we look for problems in our environments, we look for problems in our families, um, but our, our neighbor or our environment is not our biggest problem, we are, and we, we really easily forget it, so because we naturally believe the environment is the real problem, Um. One of the ways I recently saw this come out, just starkly, and I think I saw this so starkly because I resonated with, the prob- with this particular illustration I'm going to give to you, and then I immediately saw the problem as well. Um, there's an Eastern Orthodox writer named Rod Dreher. I-, I benefit a great deal from Rod Dreher's writings. I have multiple books of his. I have enjoyed uh, reading his blog for a number of years. I think he writes at the American Conservative um, and he has a blog where what he, what he oftentimes does, and this is not the whole thing that he does, but he will share stories from Christians who sort of fear that things are trending downward as a culture, things are getting worse and worse, and one of the letters that he shared was from a homeschool parent, and this homeschool parent, uh, very restrictive on their children's access to technology, These this was a very... <clears throat> isolated family. They were isolated from public school kids. Their kids couldn't play with public school kids. Um, Generally, they had no outside influences that the parents could think of. And sadly, the parents shared in this letter to Rod Dreher how their daughter had developed suicidal thoughts. She had begun to harm herself, and she ultimately rejected her faith and adopted adopted a lesbian identity. And the father had written to Rod Dreher... And he shared his total shock with the readers. And to quote him, he said, we thought we were safe. He types this in all caps. We thought we were safe. How could this happen? And then the parent says, I think I figured it out. He says, this is a quote. After the initial shock, when we were in how did this happen mode, we discovered that it all had come in through the influence of one person, her best friend, who was from one of those safe Catholic homeschooling families I mentioned. As it turns out, the family was living a double life, with the public image of being devout, but with severe dysfunction at the, hum- at the, home, at the heart of the home. In the dysfunction, the best friend had no supervision and unlimited internet. So with all the sleepovers the girls had at that house over the years, Lord knows what they were doing. And then the father says, I have figured it out. I've learned my lesson. And here's the lesson. He says, well, 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 lessons learned. And word of warning to your readers. If you aren't seeing what your kid is doing yourself, you don't know what they're doing, period. Nobody is safe. Trust, perhaps, but always verify. Now, (laughs) maybe you wonder, where is he going to go with this? I don't want you to misunderstand. I am not saying we don't monitor or care for what our kids have access to. This is the 21st century. Parents should know what they're doing when it comes to Internet in their homes. But I fear for many of us, we learn the wrong lesson from a story like this. We think they weren't diligent enough. We think they didn't lock that house down enough. We think they didn't restrict their friendships enough, right? We think the problem is with the the Catholic homeschooling family who was living the double life and they should have been more restrictive and if, if only everybody had locked everything down and lived a tightly locked up secure life, then this pain wouldn't have come into their home. That we can just sort of hide out, isolate, protect, shelter, and sin won't find its way into our home, into our life, into our children's life. But what if the lesson is far simpler? Our problem comes from within, and it follows us from place to place wherever we hide out. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save our children from our own fallen nature. It comes with us wherever we go. We cannot escape ourselves. We could remove every external influence, every godless friend, every interaction possible, and sin would find a way because the problem is us and we keep going wherever we are. My point is not, let's batten down the hatches of our home or our public lives. My point is also, that we shouldn't do is not that we shouldn't do that. My point is the ultimate problem is not outside influences. Paul shoots the idea of sheltering ourselves down in 1 Corinthians 5:10 he says that his command is not for Christians to strive to avoid sinners. He says I don't command you to do that because he says then you would need to go out of the world. It's an interesting section it's worth reading in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I don't command you to avoid being around sinners because then you would need to go out of the world. And he treats that as not an option. He, he just sort of dismisses that. That's In logic, you call that a reductio ad absurdum. You reduce something to the absurd. And to Paul, it is absurd, the idea that we would be out of the world, So he sort of rejects this monastic lifestyle for Christians. He rejects this idea, sort of the Amish way, where, hey, let's separate ourselves and go far away. In in other words, staying away from sinners is not an option. That is not the way that we face our biggest problem. The problem is that we are not pure in heart. And neither is anyone else in our home. Makes family life hard, doesn't it? The environment and the surroundings aren't the foundational problem. Now, I know this. I'm confident of this because if you look at Adam and Eve, you find these two people who fell in the garden. And what was the garden, if not the most ideal environment a human being could possibly be placed in? They're in the garden. It is a perfect place, (laughs) It is a place with everything that they need, and yet they wanted more. They had everything they needed. They had no bad habits, and they had not fallen, and yet they fell because the problem is not the environment. The problem is the heart. So you see, the the sin of the heart is a fundamental problem. It's foundation to all the other problems that we experience. Everything else flows out from this issue. And so one thing we need to know, and one thing our families need to know, is that our children cannot run from their own hearts either. Instead, we have to teach them, how do we face our problems? How do we face the sin of our own hearts? In other words, before God, how do we deal with our sin? And in this passage, what Jesus does is he brings us to face two things squarely. One is that for Christians, our focus is and ought to be on the heart, which we we saw. But then there's a second focus of Jesus here, which is this idea of purity. Because Jesus doesn't just say, blessed are those who have hearts. He He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, when we talk about purity, what are we talking about? Definitionally, the idea of purity is this, is this idea of something being unmixed, unmingled, being completely itself. When something is single and whole, then it's pure. Um, if you know the word integer, right? The word integrity uh, they, they, they share the same root. The integrity touches on this idea. To, to have integrity is to be whole. It is to be um, a unit. It is to have your whole heart. It means that you are the same person everywhere. That's what it means to have integrity. So you're not one person in one group and another person in another group. You're not one person when you're by yourself and you're another person when you're in church. If you have integrity, you are the same person wherever you go. It's a person without guile, a person without trickiness, a person without hypocrisy. And Jesus says, we should be whole people. We should be pure people. To be pure means to be like like Jesus. It means to be someone who is perfect, holy, and sinless. At least strictly speaking, that's what it really is, that we ought to yearn for that and strive for that. Now... We don't get to experience that completely in this life, right? We do experience it by small degrees, but we don't experience it completely. So to be like Jesus means we become people who love God, who love others, who desire to live that out. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, got to make his appearance. Um, I hope, if nothing else, I hope this series just results in people reading Martin lloyd Jones. But he gave my favorite practical definition of purity. He said purity means that we should live to the glory of God in every respect and that we should be the, that should be the supreme desire of our life. For somebody like you and, and me who are sinners and we have not reached the, the end of the age yet and we've not yet been transferred completely into being sinless people, which we will have someday, what does it mean in the here and now to be pure in heart? I think he's right. We we live to the glory of God in every respect, and that should be the supreme desire of our life. This is the pure person that Jesus is talking about. What that means is we care whether we're pleasing God or not. When we do things, when we think thoughts, we think to ourselves, is God pleased with this? It's a hard thing to think because we usually could say no, and then we have to adjust, right? It It... it a pure person, it hurts us to sin. It hurts us to sin because, because we know how unlike him sin makes us. And so every time we sin, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. <laughs> it hurts. And we remember a passage like we find in Hebrews where the author talks about holiness without which no one shall see the Lord, and we yearn for that holiness. We want that. We want that, what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Jesus doesn't say pure in head, by the way. Jesus is not primarily talking about what we think, although it's bound up in all of these things together. Ultimately, Jesus is talking about what we love. When he does that, he's not lowering the stakes, he's raising them here. One of the things that happens, that Christians will do, we pit the head against the heart. You know, we'll say that there are people in the church who love, and then they're the eggheads. And we treat them both like they're different groups and they're different people and we can't be the same, uh, or that they're supposed to be polar opposites of each other. Part of the reason for this is the Bible shows us what we believe ends up affecting what we feel and what we live. So all of these things bleed into each other. They, they are part of being a whole person. The, the heart is bound up not only with how we think, but how we feel, and how we feel about how we think, and how we think about how we feel. And you can go deeper into that cycle if you want. <laughs> But our head and our heart have this symbiotic relationship with each other. So God cares about what we think about him. Because when we, what we think ends up affecting what we believe. And what we believe ends up affecting what we love. And what we love ends up affecting what we believe. And you can see how these things all end up impacting each other. So that the person starts to emerge between our beliefs and our feelings. But at the end of the day, when Jesus says we should be pure in heart, he's talking about the center of the person. He's talking about the whole man. Not just our thoughts, but our feelings and our loves. We are to aim at being a whole person who is pure. Not just someone with merely, merely right thoughts or right behaviors or right levels of public decency or performance, but people with right loves and right desires too. That's what the goal should be to be people who are different. My father died of leukemia about 20 years ago. My dad comes up every three or four. If Some of you have bingo cards. Dad, Adam mentioning his dad is on the bingo card, I think. Um, but I remember, I remember one night in the hospital, and I, I know I've shared this before, but probably not with you. But I remember one night in the hospital sitting with my dad, and I decided to do the scary thing of mentioning his death because he was not well. And, you know, sometimes I think as, as family members, sometimes you say, he's going to get better, even though you can see that he's not, and you believe that he's not. And, and I did not believe my father was getting better. I believed he was getting far worse. It turned out to be right, but I'm not omniscient. And one day, I decided that I would ask my father what he most looked forward to about heaven. And I think he was upset that I asked him that. I think I think, you know, again, the rules exist for a reason. You're not supposed to say this. And it made him confront something in his own life. I'm going to die, or I could die. And I asked my father what he was most looking forward to about heaven. And the thing he said, he was very weary and tired at that time. He said, I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want to sin anymore. And... That is the reflection of a heart that yearns to be pure. Do you do you yearn to be pure in heart? Could you say, the thing I look forward to most about heaven, you could say lots of things, but would, I don't want to sin anymore, be on your list? Some people are like, I want to play basketball with some famous basketball player. I want to, you could think of all kinds of goofy stuff that perhaps is, is, is done in heaven uh, to God's glory, but... Is I don't want to sin anymore on your list? (laughs) Is I want to be like Jesus on my list? Um, Jesus says that this yearning is, is part of the Christian experience. It's part of our life. It is something that we wake up and we wish that we were more like this. The life of the Christian is somebody who's an experienced sinner who knows his sin. But more than anything, what does he want? He wants to be rid of it. He wants to be cleansed. Now, that really is... Now, the thing that's, that's heart-stopping about all of this is this, there's this scandalous concept in Jesus' words here that anyone who is a sinner could ever be what Jesus calls pure in heart. Isn't that a scandalous thought, right? It's, it's counterintuitive because if you think about it, once you sin, you have sinned. Once you have sinned, you are no longer pure, period. Right? How does somebody who's impure even conceive of the idea of himself being pure, that is remarkable. When you read through the book of 2 Samuel, one of the things that is probably most striking is this sin that David commits with Bathsheba as he steals Uriah's wife, he has Uriah killed, and then he confronts. He's confronted by the prophet Nathan. What does Nathan do? The, Na- the prophet Nathan says, you are the man. You are the one who did this. This is all on you. No one made you do this, David. This is your responsibility. And then David lowers his head and he says, I have sinned. And then Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And then you, you could almost imagine David as he goes back to his room sitting down and writing, composing Psalm 51. Psalm 51. One of the best examples of confession in all of scripture. This is a, man, a prayer of a man who is guilty as sin. And yet in the, in Psalm 51, one of the things that comes through loud and clear is this desire. I yearn to be pure in heart. And he says, created me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. I don't know... If David would have ever reasoned that such a thing was possible, if Nathan had not told him that it was possible, he hears the word of God, the word of God speaks to him and says, your sin has been put away, you shall not die. He's heard the word of God and now he knows I can be pure in heart. He writes it into his prayer, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. God granted this man forgiveness, a man guilty of murder, a man guilty of adultery. He doesn't just have a right standing with God, but God grants him his request and gives him a clean heart. How can anyone who has ever been impure become pure, right? The answer to that question is what is so stunning about the gospel. Being pure doesn't mean being good. It means to be cleansed too. Because you know this about yourself, and I see this about myself. We all have checkered pasts. We have all got sins on our record. We all have things that if we look back on our past, we can think of all the sins we have accumulated and the new sins we accumulate each day. What is someone like that supposed to do? Someone who knows their sin. How Are they supposed to just pretend that they're pure? Well, you have this promise what is the good news for someone like you and me? First John 1 John 1.9 says it so well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He doesn't violate his justice to do this. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No pretending involved. We are not make-believing that we are pure. He declares it to be so. Because he is God. This is the gospel. The impure become pure. The unclean becomes clean. The unrighteous becomes righteous. That's the gospel. And, and, and it happens. Not because we have started acting good. Or reformed our lives. But because the Savior rescues us. From the guilt of sin. And from the corruption of sin. And he pardons us. But he also does something else. He starts a process in this life where he is changing us day to day to make us more holy. Now, we still sin. (laughs) One step forward, two steps back some days, right? We still sin. But what do we start to see if we were to chart out the course of our life on something as boring as a graph or a diagram? (laughs) Unless you like that sort of thing. Um, What do we see? We see ourselves moving towards the Lord. And then we see ourselves sinning. And we see progress, though. We see progress over time. And you look over the course of 20 years, and you look back at the person you were, and you see a very different person than you recognize today. That's progress. As we repent of our sin, as we seek his grace to grow, and we become more like Jesus, and we don't dig in our heels and declare that we are right when we know that we're wrong. So when Jesus says the pure in heart, he's talking about something more than just behavior modification. He's not talking about behavior modification. He's also talking about more than just forgiveness. He is talking about a process that begins in this life when we put our trust in Christ and then also by his rejuvenating, renovating power of his spirit, he keeps changing us by degrees to be more like Jesus. That is what it really means. be pure in heart by jesus's words here we trust in christ we become positionally pure and then we live the christian life we live and we walk in the cleansing that he gives and that will be complete one day it's not going to be complete now but it's going to be complete one day so purity is a present reality and it is a future reality it's present in part and someday it's going to be present completely and so if you are in christ by faith alone there is good news for you You know what it is to be pure in heart. And if you're devoted to God, if you love Christ, if you repent when you sin, cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ, Jesus is talking about you here. But that brings us to the second thing that's the ambition of the Christian, right? Because we've already said, blessed are the pure in heart. But there is this other thing, this little thing to see God, just a little thing. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why are they blessed? Why are they happy? Why is somebody like this blessed? Because they shall see God. There is something about the human heart that is both repelled by this notion and irresistibly drawn by this notion. Uh, On one level, we are drawn and repelled by this because we were made for God. We're drawn to this idea because we were made for God. Do you remember at the beginning of... uh, Uh, Moby Dick, I won't ask how many hands. I've read the beginning of Moby Dick dozens of times. I read up to the chapter that described the pulpit, and I remember thinking, what a great pulpit, and I never got past that chapter. And then I said, you know, I should read Moby Dick, and then I read the first chapter again. So one of the things that stands out about the first chapter of Moby Dick, which I'm well versed in, he has that That moment, I think in the first couple pages where he talks about how irresistibly drawn people are to the sea. Um, Among many reasons why I love the Pacific Northwest, I can get to the sea when I need to. When I have my hankering, I go and I'm satisfied by the sea. Um, But Ishmael talks about, at the beginning of Moby Dick, he talks about how inevitably whenever there is water that is moving somewhere, people will be drawn towards it like zombies. They're just drawn to the water. They just love water. We love water. Uh, Would anyone be going camping if there wasn't water near there, right? Uh, Well, maybe we would, but we love water, though. And, And I think the same thing is true of God, to see God, to know God. There is something God's people in Scripture deeply yearn for, to know the Creator who made them. They are as drawn to God as we are to the sea. I'm actually even talking about sinful people who reject God here, by the way, because they have their inner worshiper who is yearning for the creator, and they're deflecting that desire in other unhealthy places and to things that aren't God. But they still have that same yearning for God inside, even the most ardent atheist. Think of Moses in Exodus 33, right? What does Moses say to the God? One of the most, one of the nerviest requests anybody ever made to the creator. This is a quote from Exodus 33. Moses says, please show me your glory. And what does God, how does God respond? He says, you don't get to see me. You get to see my goodness pass by. You don't even get to see my glory. You get to see my goodness. Now, why is that? He gives his explanation. He says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So, Moses, on the one hand, yearns for this. He yearns for this thing that would destroy him if he got it. And you could almost imagine Moses going, It's fine. You can show me your glory still. I gotta die somehow. Might as well be really awesome. And God says, no, I've got more work for you, Moses. <laughs> All God could give him without destroying him was a taste. It was a glimpse. Think of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, who is so dispirited. He's so filled with dread because of the spiritual state of Israel. If you remember this moment on Mount Carmel, I'm told it's Carmel. If you say Carmel, people think it's made of candy. Um <laughs> I'll always call it Mount Carmel. It sounds like a delicious place, but <laughs> Elijah is, has just defeated, by God's grace, the, 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 the prophets of Baal. He has had this, this miracle take place where fire descends from heaven and licks up all of the wood on, this, uh, on the altar. And this spiritual victory comes and Elijah has believed in his heart that this is the moment of reformation for Israel. And now he finds out that Ahab and his wife are still going to kill him. The reformation that he hoped for isn't coming. He's not going to be the reformer for Israel that he believed he was. So what does he do? He goes and he wants to die. And in this moment, He's so dispirited, he's so filled with dread, and he receives this experience of God. What happens? A strong wind, an earthquake, a fire, and then a low whisper. What does Elijah get? He gets a whisper. One of the Puritans said the reason why God whispered to Elijah was because if he had used his regular voice, Elijah would have been totally shattered. Somehow we want this though, right? We, we want to see him. We want to, to, to know him even though his speaking voice would destroy us. There is something about him that repels us and draws us all at once. But there is something about the presence of God, isn't there? You have Isaiah who, who saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple and we think how wonderful to see, and Isaiah's response is to bury his face as far from what he's seeing as he possibly can. See, you see, again, those twin impulses there. I want to see God. Oh, I don't want to see God. If I saw him, I'd be ruined, right? He sees God, and immediately he starts cursing himself. Um... To be in the presence of a holy God is, to, is, is in any sense, is not a pleasant experience for any of the biblical prophets or writers. They may want it, but it will destroy them. Isn't that interesting that on one level we want to see him, and on another level we'd be destroyed by him? This is what brings me around to Jesus' words here. This is why what Jesus says is so extraordinary. It's four words. They shall see God, and in a sense, Jesus begins to fulfill this desire for his people. What does he say in Luke chapter 10? Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Unfulfilled desires. Follow the Old Testament saints. They're yearning for this thing that they want more than anything else. What do they want? They want to see God. Jesus tells us even more specifically, that's true. They wanted to see Jesus. They yearned to see Jesus because he fulfills the promise of scripture. But on a deeper level, to see Jesus is to have that vision that the heart yearns so desperately for. It is to see God. To see God is to have your soul at home. It's what Moses wanted. It's what Elijah wanted. It's what Isaiah wanted and didn't want. (laughs) They shall see God, Jesus says. That's the promise here. The pure in heart shall see God <clears throat> now, there's a sense in which we see God. Christians who are very spiritually attuned see God in, in many ways even now. We see him, his dealings in our lives. We see him working things out in history. We see the revelation of God in, in the book of nature, in the book of the heart, as Psalm 19 and Romans 1 tell us. But Jesus is speaking in a deeper way than just sensing God. He's talking about more than just having a sense of the divine because the word that, that has historically been used for this is the beatific vision, the, the blessed vision. Um, R.C. Sproul says, no, we don't see God with our eyeballs. He's not a being with a physical body. And if you're a child in the room or, and you have been confused by talking about seeing God, I really can't blame you for being confused by the way I'm talking. We don't see God with our physical eyes because God doesn't, isn't made of matter. And our eyes are only good at perceiving matter. And so God isn't made of matter. So no matter how hard we look, except in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we will not see with our physical eyes anything. We wouldn't see God because he doesn't have a physical body. He's a spirit. And yet there's coming this moment where the Christian actually stands in the presence of the fullness and glory of God, unashamed, Perfect in his sight. He, he's holding out there as a goal of the end of the gospel that, that in some sense, there is coming a day when we will be brought near to God, where we will see him, where we be reconciled to him, or we'll have, have our heart's desire filled up and not be destroyed when we get it. We are people who cannot see God without dying because we're sinners, right? The book of Revelation says, Nothing unclean will enter. The New Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is the key. Not how good are you, but whose are you? These people have been taught that they may not see God and live, and yet Jesus has the temerity to say to the crowd, what is required is purity, and only I can give that to you. Isn't that the message he's been giving them so far in the Beatitudes? He's been telling us in the Beatitudes, come to God in humility. Come with spiritual poverty. Throw yourself upon Christ. And what is the promise? First John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we shall know that, we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We shall. He's talking future here. So according to what John says here, it is our likeness to him, though, that allows us to see him as he is, right? He says, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So there is something about being pure in heart that allows you to see God and not be destroyed. We have that purity in small degrees. God treats us as pure now in Christ. If you trust in Jesus, then you know that purity. And there's this tight connection here. Because we are pure, we shall be able to see him. But there's there's coming a day where we're going to be transformed. There's coming a day when we're going to be changed for those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. As Revelation puts it, that's another way of saying that you belong to Jesus. When you belong to Jesus, your name is written there. You have that notion of, of seeing God. That is a very different proposal for someone in Christ. Because for somebody who's in Christ, the notion of seeing God is not a fear. It's not a horror. It isn't something to be terrified of. It is a welcome homecoming it's a joyful notion that God would receive us that he would welcome us that we wouldn't be aliens and strangers from him and he is ready to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart all we have to do is trust and rest in Jesus Christ when we do that the promise is ours we shall see God let's pray Heavenly Father, it is the cry of our heart to be restored to full fellowship with you, to be pure in heart, that we may see you, to not be alienated from you. And while our lives are still punctuated with sin, we recognize that even now you give us your presence because you are pleased with us in Christ. But there's coming a day when we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. When in your time you take us home ultimately and finally, never to be stained by our own sin ever again. We yearn for it. But in the meantime, we put our trust in you as we anticipate the day when our faith shall be sight. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.